I'm so thankful to be with you this morning to be able to open God's Word to you. It's been a joy for me to be here this weekend. And I've had the privilege this weekend of uh, getting to know the leadership of this church. And I want to just encourage you uh, who are part of Southside that God has really uh, given you uh, godly uh, leaders to lead you and people who are very zealous to work together for God's glory. And I'm just very encouraged with the life of the church. And thank you, Pastor Blake, for giving me the opportunity to preach uh, his word to you this morning. I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 29. It's a very familiar Old Testament story. If you have your Bible with you, open your Bible, have it open in your lap. I'm not going to read the passage to you, but I'll be referencing the passage through my sermon, and you'll be able to follow along and see where we are in the passage as we go through it. This is a very familiar story, We've, but probably most of us have only heard it in Sunday school rather than hearing it uh, preached from, uh, on a Sunday morning. So we'll look at this passage together this morning. Let me just pray with you and ask, ask for God's help as we turn to His Word. We come, Lord, uh, recognizing how profoundly we need You. We need Your grace. We need for Your Spirit to... Uh, minister to us today. We need for your spirit to take the words off the page. These words were written by inspiration of God. We ask, Lord, that you take them off the page, that you plant them in our hearts, that you would help us to grow in our insight and understanding of you and your ways and your truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, uh, deepen our walk with you, that you would help us to be people who are finding Christ to be our all in all, whose testimony of life every day is what we've just sung, that God alone is our vision, God alone is our delight, God alone is our source of goodness, our joy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would confirm those truths in us this morning, that you would deepen our insight into it, that you would uh, give us greater longing for you and greater desire for you. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who who does not know God, who is in need of, of the awakening of the Spirit of God to bring them from death to life. We pray that you would do that work as well this morning as we look at your word. We ask this for Christ's great glory. Amen. Well, Jacob is one of those figures in the Bible that's very easy for us to identify with. Uh, you, you have to feel sorry for him in some ways. Uh, Jacob never had the love of his father. You remember he was a twin. He had a brother Esau, who his father loved. His father ignored Jacob and doted all of his attention on Esau. It even tells us earlier on in the book of Genesis that Isaac loved Esau, and Isaac uh, gave his attention to his foolish son Esau. And even in this story, uh, Jacob is forced by his uncle to work twice as long as he bargained for in order to get his wife. It seems like Jacob is one of those people that the things he longs for always seem to be just out of reach. In some ways, we look at Jacob and we don't feel sorry for him. We, we, we can't stand him. He's a flawed man. He's, he's dishonest. He's conniving. He's a cheater. He's, he's manipulative. He's cruel. He's willing to lie and cheat and blaspheme and do whatever he needs to do to get what he wants. And so there's, there's a, a desperate vulnerability to Jacob, but in many ways he's the kind of person we can relate to. 
And I have three things for you this morning from this passage. I want to look at the story with you, and we want to uh, look at some background first, I should say, then we'll look at the story, and then we'll draw lessons from the story. So those three things we'll be doing this morning. But just setting the stage, looking at the background, you might remember uh, that Jacob has received some revelation from God, but he still needs to grow in his understanding of that revelation. Remember that in, uh, in Genesis chapter 28, he has this amazing dream. He's fleeing from his brother. Uh, he, he has stolen the birth, the blessing of the firstborn from his brother. He's, he's fleeing. Uh, he's running for his life. He knows his brother wants to kill him. And uh, God comes to Jacob with unconditional promises of covenant blessing. God uh, says to him, I will bless you. And I'll give you descendants, and I'll give you a land, and I'll make you a blessing. I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you back home. So no conditions, just God's promise of covenant blessing. The first time God has revealed himself to Jacob, and he gives him these marvelous blessings. And notice Jacob's response in chapter 28 is a very conditional response. He says, if God will be with me on this journey, if he will... Uh, give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely to my father's house. Then God will be my God, and, and uh, I'll, of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. Notice his very conditional response, if, 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 then. Uh, very conditional response. And I point this out because God coming to Jacob at, uh, at Bethel is, shows the goodness and mercy of God. And there's a staircase to heaven. The angels of God are ascending and descending on the staircase. And, and God comes to him, uh, comes down the staircase to Jacob, meets Jacob in his need, comes with these marvelous covenant blessings. The stairway to heaven is not a ladder that Jacob climbs to get to God. God comes to him. And he comes to him with wonderful promises. And Jacob doesn't fully yet understand all the implications of those promises, but God is moving him. God is moving him in the direction of loving God and loving God alone, but he's not, he's not there yet. There are too many ifs in his response to God, too many conditions. Jacob is in process. God is working on him. He's still going to, Jacob is still going to disappoint us, but God is still working on him. And we might say that in many ways, Jacob is a lot like you and me. We, we have insights into knowing God. We see something of his glory. We, we, we are moved by him. We, we want him. He reveals himself to us. But the implications of that for everyday living don't always uh, fully come to us. We don't always connect uh, with those implications. And God in mercy keeps using people and circumstances to work on us and to bring us to the place of finding hope in God and in nothing else. And Jacob is in that process of growth. So that's a little background uh, to the story. The second uh, background issue is in the early part of this chapter, in the first 12 verses or so, Jacob goes to the, his, uh, the, his ancestral homeland, the, the, the homeland of his mother. He connects with Laban and Laban's people. Uh, and the story in many ways has echoes of the earlier story of Abraham's servant going to find a bride for Isaac and, and goes to the well, the same well, and that's where he connects with the clan. 
And Jacob goes to that well. And at that well, because the well is the meeting place. It's the place where people gather because they go for water. And, and he, connects, he connects with his, his cousin, uh, Rachel, and he, uh, he, 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 he's smitten by her. And he, he takes her home and, and, uh, to her father, Laban. And Laban hears his story and learns that he is the, the son of Laban's sister. And he... he embraces him and kisses him and says, you are my own flesh and blood. So that's the background. Jacob has been fleeing the wrath of his brother. Uh, he has stolen the, birth, the blessing of the firstborn. God has come to him with covenant promises. He's made his way to Laban's uh, home, and uh, Laban has embraced him. Well, we want to look at the story. Uh, really, if you're following your Bible, it's beginning with verse 14 or so in, this, in the text. Jacob is there for a month. Uh, he's working uh, for his uncle Laban. Laban sees that he is obviously someone that's worth keeping around. He's, he's industrious. These men were herdsmen, and Jacob has been working with him. And so Laban comes to him, verse 15, and he says, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, we know Jacob is a cheater and a conniver, uh, he's a dishonest man, but as a con man, he is up against his match with Uncle Laban because Uncle Laban is just as crooked as he is, only Uncle Laban has been doing it longer. And so he comes to him with this very open-ended question. He begins this negotiation with this open-ended question, tell me what you're worth. What should I pay you? Now, don't you hate a question like that in a job interview? Because if the interviewer says, if, says, if the interviewer says how much money do you want, you think, well, I don't want to go too high. He'll think that my expectations are too high. He won't give me the job because he'll know I, always, I will always be dissatisfied. If I go too low, I might end up with working for less than I could have made. And so he asks this very open-ended question. Now, verse 18 tells us that Jacob is head over heels in love with Rachel. He was smitten. Apparently, Rachel was a very stunning beauty uh, verse 17 describes Rachel to us, and it says, Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. It, it's a, uh, here's a desirable woman, and there are two descriptors here. She's shapely, and she has a face to match. She's a lovely, uh, attractive woman. And it's interesting that the text identifies both of those qualities. Jacob is smitten. Remember who he is. Jacob is this son who is never had the love of his father, Isaac. His father is doted on his, his brother, Esau. He's been largely ignored by the head of the clan. Uh, his father, his father has poured his love into Esau. He has stolen the blessing of the firstborn. He's fleeing his brother's wrath. He knows his brother has consoled himself by promising himself, I will kill him as soon as our father's dead. And so he's fleeing. The only person that has ever loved him, his mother, is still back in Canaan. He will never see her again. He's, he is full of longings, and, and he believes that these longings can be met in a relationship. If I had Rachel, my life would be good. If I had Rachel, things would come together for me. If I had Rachel, I would have joy. Now, Jacob, of course, is not the only person that has ever done this. It's really a reflection of the great exchange that Romans chapter 1 speaks of. One of the places we go for fulfillment in our emptiness is to relationships. 
If I had someone who loved me, if I had someone who, who, who was accepting me, someone beautiful and, and delightful and tender and affectionate uh, who loved me and who wanted me, then I could find joy, I would find delight, my life would be fulfilled. And, and it, that's where Jacob is, he's in love. As you know, being in love is always more about me than it is about the other person. I have someone who fulfills me, someone who makes me happy, someone who gives me joy. Uh, so Laban opens these negotiations by asking Jacob to tell him what he's worth. What do you think you're worth? He's really asking Jacob to put all the cards on the table. And the, verse 18 tells us that Jacob was in love with Rachel. And so he says, I will work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, as soon as Laban hears this, he knows he has Jacob right where he wants him because Jacob is not negotiating. He has just offered a dowry, which is three or four times greater than the customary dowry for a bride. And of course, a negotiator loses any leverage when the person with whom you're negotiating realizes you will pay whatever you have to pay in order to get what you want. My wife and I, uh, we, we love antiques, and we live in Pennsylvania. Sometimes we'll go down to the Amish part of the state and wander in and out of these dusty old antique shops looking for things that we are attracted to. We've been married for over 50 years. We have very similar taste. We'll find something we like, and Margie will say, ask him, ask him how much he wants for that. So I'll go to the shopkeeper, a very offhanded way. I'll say, what, what do you want for that? He'll say, $300. Margie says, that's not bad. I thought it'd be twice that much. Now, I've just lost any ability to negotiate, haven't I? Because if my wife thinks it's worth twice as much as he's asking, I'm not going to do any negotiating. And that's what happens with, with uh, Jacob here. You know, and Laban is so clever. He, he never shakes hands. He never says it's a deal. He never really agrees to it. He makes this rather offhanded statement in verse 19. He says, better that I give her to you than someone else. Stay with me. He seems to agree. Jacob hears what he wants to hear. And so it says in verse 20, Jacob served for seven years to get Rachel, but they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. Here's a man in love. He goes out into the fields herding the, the flocks day after day in the weather and, and comes home bone tired and every night. But the days pass quickly because of his love for Rachel. He can't wait. He's counting down the days when he's finally going to be able to take her into his tent and consummate his love with her. And verse 21 gives us a sense of the passionate longings he had for Rachel. It says, give me my wife so I can lie with her. Now, in our culture, where we, people talk very freely about sexual desire and sexual passion, we're not very shocked by this verse. But in the history of commentary, many commentators have commented on the raw uh, passion of Jacob's statement because it seems like he's saying, just give her to me because I, I want to, or I want to have her. And it seems like this needy, hurting man has vested a, all of his hope in finally having this wife and having Rachel. But he, for him, it doesn't seem to be about companionship or fellowship or shared life. It's really, she's going to satisfy his passions and his desires. So Laban has this great wedding party. You can picture the scene the whole 
community is invited to the wedding party. Laban's a wealthy man. They, they're slaughtering animals and there's food and they're eating and drinking and partying into the night. And, and at the end of the night, uh, Jacob takes his very heavily veiled wife into his tent. There are no electric lights. He holds her through the night. He, oh, Rachel, oh, Rachel, my love. Oh, Rachel, how I've longed for this day. Oh, Rachel, oh, my darling Rachel. And he drifts off to sleep. And behold, in the morning, it was Leah. And Jacob goes to Laban in a rage. What is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? What kind of a man are you? You cheated me. You knew I was serving you for Rachel. You gave me Leah. And, and what kind of a man are you? Why did you deceive me like that? And you can't help but wonder at what point the irony of his question and the foolishness of his rage would have begun to dawn on Jacob. Because it was the same question his father had. Why did you deceive me? And Laban's answer must have exploded within his conscience when Laban said, around here, we don't prefer the younger before the older. And surely at that point, all the pieces would have fallen in place and Jacob would have realized Laban has done to him exactly what he did to his father. Dressed in a disguise, under the cover of the darkness of Isaac's blindness, Jacob, Jacob did to his father exactly what his uncle did to him. His father reached out and touched someone who wasn't the person he thought he was touching. There's an old medieval rabbi that uh, writes about this passage and, and he, he imagines a conversation that could have taken place the next day between Leah and Jacob in which Jacob is reproving Leah, and he says, you deceived me. I called out to you in the night as if you were Leah or Rachel, and you responded like you were Rachel. And she says to him, you deceived your father. He called out to you as if you were Esau, and you responded like you were Esau. Well, Laban says to him, finish this week, with this bride, and at the end of the bridal week, I'll give you the younger one also, but you're going to have to work for me for another seven years. So, Jacob uh, took Rachel after that week and had Leah and Rachel as his wives. Now, I want, to learn, I want us to learn the lesson from this story because there's a line in this story that speaks volumes to us. And it's in verse 25, when the morning came, there was Leah. And that statement is far more profound than just an expression of Jacob's disappointment when in the morning he realized the bride he had been holding throughout the night was Leah and not his beloved Rachel. It's, it's really, uh, Jacob had placed all of his hopes of joy and blessedness and lasting happiness on, on Rachel. And in the morning, it was Leah. And of course, the pursuit of one true love is not the only way we do this. 
It's what we do when we think about getting into graduate school. We think if I get this next degree, opportunities are going to open up for me and, and my life will come together and I will finally be happy. Or we think this house, this house has always been so crowded. I've never liked this house and the neighbors have been so difficult. But this new house is the house we've always wanted. We're going to be happy here. Or this job, you know, I was thankful to have a job previously and, and, you know, the pay was okay, but this new job is the job, it's the dream job. I can't believe it. I'm going to get paid for doing things I love doing. Or we think, if only I had a husband, I would be happy. Or if only God would give us children, we would be happy. Or when you're older like I am, you might think, if only the children would move out, <laughs> I would be happy. There's a cosmic truth here, and you'll never live with wisdom without getting hold of this truth. In the morning, it is always Leah. Those things we think will satisfy us never satisfy us. I, I was teaching this sermon, this series in Genesis was the last series I taught as a pastor in our church, and when I preached this sermon, uh, in that series on Genesis, a woman came to me afterwards and she said, weight loss, weight loss. That was my Rachel. I thought if I could lose 50 pounds, if I could get into all those clothes I haven't been able to wear for the last eight years, and I, then I would be happy. And she said, I lost 50 pounds and in the morning it was Leah. Derek Kidner makes a commentary in this passage and, and he has this excellent little line. He says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah is a miniature of all of our disillusionment from the Garden of Eden onward. No one ever said it better than C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope. He says, most people, if they will look into their own hearts, would know that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings that rise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or failures of holidays and so on, I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There's always something we've grasped at, something we have, something in that first moment of longing, but it fades in the reality. The spouse may have been a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but it still evaded us. In the morning, it is always Leah. The second lesson from this passage is really the corollary of the first lesson. It's the other side of the coin, that it is, it's the lesson we continue to try to learn. It is only God who will satisfy our deepest longings. In the Sunday school stories, a version of these stories, uh, Leah is always the forgotten person. But we know quite a bit about Leah. Leah. From what we have in the text, we can extrapolate and get a good picture of Leah's life and get a good picture of her marriage. Because there's this, there's this comparison between Leah and Rachel in verse 17. And, and, and it says, 
Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, obviously, the purpose of the comparison is beauty. It's not vision. It's not Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel, she could see for two miles. It, it's, the, the point is, is beauty because beauty's in the eyes. There was something about Leah's eyes that spoiled her beauty. Maybe they, they didn't track together. Or maybe they bulged too much or maybe they had a film over them or something. But there was something about her eyes that spoiled her beauty. But in contrast to that, Rachel was, was beautiful Lovely in form and beautiful. And we can imagine Leah's life. She grew up in the shadow of a younger sister who was a stunning beauty. All the comments of praise were always for Rachel. Oh, these are your daughters. Oh, that little one. She's a cutie. You'll have to watch her around the boys. The comments of praise were always for Rachel. And even after she was married, she finally had a husband And the next week, Rachel moved in. And she's still in the shadow of Rachel. She has a husband, but he doesn't want her. She's still living in the shadow of Rachel's beauty. She's a forgotten woman. Jacob sleeps with her sometimes, but he loves Rachel. Leah's the forgotten one. She's the one that can be in the room, and no one sees her. She's the one that can leave the room, and no one knows that she's slipped out. She's, she's forgotten, but she's not forgotten by God. There's a very tender verse in verse 31. It says, when the Lord said that Leah was not loved, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. And the description of the next several years of Leah's life are very heartrending if you read them with insight and with understanding, because uh, she gave her son her, excuse me, her husband, son after son. She became this dutiful wife that kept having children for him and kept bearing sons for him. This poor, unloved woman. And, and she, after she would give birth to a son, she would give her son names that reflected her longings for her husband. And so the first one she named C's, Reuben, to see. Maybe now my husband will see me now that I've given him a son. She names the next one, hears uh, Simeon. Maybe now that I've given him another son, he will hear me. And maybe you're thinking, Ted, you're reading way too much into these names. But she tells us what she's doing. When the third son is born, she names him Levi, which means attached. Maybe now that I've given him Another son, I've borne him three sons. Maybe now, at last, my husband will become attached to me. It's very interesting. She names her sons names that reflect a wife's longings for her husband. A wife wants to be seen. She wants to be noticed. I've been married, as Pastor Blake said, for 51 years. My wife will come to me. It just happened last week, in fact. She got a haircut. She said, do you like my hair? I'm thinking it's the same hair you've had for the last 51 years. But see, she's, she's done something different with, with, with it, and she wants to know that I've noticed. She wants to be seen. A wife wants to be heard. She wants to know that when I speak to my husband, he pays attention. My words matter. He puts down his phone. He looks at me. 
and he hears me, and he's moved by what I say. A wife wants to be attached to her husband. She wants to have a sense that we're in this together. We're not moving in totally separate orbits and just colliding together once in a while, but we are, we are attached to one another. A wife wants to be attached, and so she, she gives her these, these names to her son that reflect her longings. But between son three and four, something very wonderful happens to Leah. She's been trying to get Jacob to give her significance all these years. In effect, she's actually been doing the same thing with Jacob that Jacob did with Rachel. She's thinking, if I have Jacob's love. For, for Jacob, it was the trophy wife, Rachel. For, for Leah, it was the love of Jacob. If I have Jacob's love, if Jacob loves me, then my life will come together. If he sees me, if he hears me, if he's attached to me, I will live. And between sons three and four, she realizes that Jacob will never be able to give her the longings of her heart. But God will. And so verse 35, it says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And she named that son Judah, which means praise. This time I'm not looking for some idol of my heart, in her case, Jacob, to meet my longings, to satisfy me, to make me okay. This time I will praise the Lord. And she takes the deepest longings of her heart away from her husband and she places them on God. And she says, this time I'm not looking for something else to satisfy me, something else to give me meaning, something else to make my life sing. This time I will praise the Lord. And she focuses on God. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, what are the deepest longings of your heart? What are the things that you look at and you think, if I had that, my life would sing. If I had, if I had a family like that, if I had that kind of success, if I had that kind of prosperity, if I had that reputation, if I had that kind of ease or comfort, if I only I had that, my life would sing. What longings do you need to place take off of lesser things and place on God? What longings do you have that you feel, my life will not be complete, my life will not be happy, I will never experience joy unless I have this? Because what we need to do is what Leah did. We need to take our longings away from lesser things and place them on God. I'm not looking for Jacob. I'm not looking for success. I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for prosperity. I'm not even looking for a happy family or successful children. I, my hope is in God. This time, I will praise the Lord. Leah learned the lesson that we should take away from this passage of Scripture, that it is only God who satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. It's only God who will who will bring joy. It's only God who will compass our lives to bless, uh, with blessing. The great love that you long for is not another person. It's not something in this creation that's going to make you happy. It is God and God alone because you're made for God. And it's only God who will satisfy your deepest longings. It's only God who will give you, truly give you life. Jacob, or Leah, recognized that. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. 
The Old Testament is very interesting. I've been studying the Old Testament a lot and examples of parenting in the Old Testament because uh, it's interesting. If you read the Old Testament as a book of virtues, you're very disappointed in the figures you find in the Old Testament because what we have in the Old Testament are flawed people. And you look at parenting examples in the Old Testament, they're all, there are so many examples of parental failure and rare examples of parental success. Because what we have in the scriptures are flawed people, people like the people in this passage who don't get it right. And if your approach to religion is the idea of God at the top of the staircase and somehow we climb the staircase to get to God, and God's at the top, you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself disappointed in these Old Testament narratives. Because what we see in this story is not people climbing to get to God. What we see in this story is God in incredible mercy coming down the staircase, coming into our lives, coming to us with his blessing and his goodness. It's God who comes to this girl who nobody wanted and shows her incredible mercy and makes her a mother that is in the line of the Messiah. Leah probably did not know that. But the writer of the book of, of Genesis knew that Leah was the mother in the line of the Messiah. In chapter 49, as Jacob is giving blessings to his sons, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. God looked down on these two women, the one who had the golden life and the girl that nobody wanted, the girl that was unlovely and unloved, and he said to her, you are going to be the mother in the line of the Messiah. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, God loved her. That's what's going on here. God is the bridegroom that Leah always wanted. Why does Leah and not Rachel become the mother in the line of Christ? Is it just that God likes the underdog? You see, Leah is a picture of grace. She's a picture of how God works. Because God doesn't come to earth saying, I'm the God of the strong. I'm the God of, ha who, of those who have their act together. I'm the God of those who, who obey the rules and keep the rules and through obedience climb the ladder and ascend to me. God comes down the ladder into our world, into our brokenness, into the messiness of our lives with incredible grace and mercy. That's what he does for Leah. That's what he does for you and me. And what we need most profoundly is to know this God and to, to embrace him. He comes into our world. He comes into our world. Uh, in fact, he comes into our world incarnate. God comes into our world in flesh like yours and mine. And he lives in our world without sin so that we can have righteousness. And he dies as a sacrifice for our sins so that the, the, the guilt of our sins can be atoned for. And John chapter 1 
is very fascinating because John picks up the story of chapter 28, the staircase to heaven. At the end of that, of John chapter 1, Jesus says, you will see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And what he's telling us is that Jesus is the staircase to heaven. Jesus is the one through whom the blessings of God are brought to earth and through whom the people on earth are brought into the presence of God. Jesus is the one that brings us to God. And if you're weak and needy and sinful and you know you need a Savior, He's the Savior of every sinner who will ever come to Him. And He will not only save you, as glorious as that is, but He will be the bridegroom that you always needed. He will be the one who will meet and supply your every need. He will be the one who will, who will give meaning and sense to life because you're made for Him. And it's only God that will meet your deepest needs. I can't help but believe that there's someone in this room who needs God, who needs God in that way, who needs to know Him, who needs to cast Himself on Him. That there are not people in this room who need to do what I often need to do and say, God, I'm trying to find meaning and significance and life in things other than you. Focus me again on you, on your grace, on your mercy, on your kindness, on your love. And enable me to know you, to love you, to delight in you, to find you to be my all in all. May God give us the grace to do that today.